Here we are in bonus time for our monthly COVID update, again with Dr. Paul Carson, MD and a public health doctor, infectious disease, and Dr. John Grabenstein, PhD, vaccinologist and epidemiologist. Uh, John and Paul, uh, we're changing over to a new administration in D.C. What, if anything, regarding both the vaccine and pandemic handling, do you expect to change? Um, you know, uh, I, I think one of the things we've already alluded to a bit, President-elect Biden has uh, said he's very committed to uh, distributing all stores, essentially all stores. I think maybe he talked about holding 10 percent back. Uh, but uh, that was a change from the initial uh, policy, although uh, now the Operation Warp Speed team is sounds like they're on board with this and DHS is on board with the same thing. But I think that's going to happen. Um, I think he's picked a pretty good group of people for his uh, coronavirus task force. Dr. Vivek Murthy, Dr. Michael Osterholm, um, I'm trying to remember if uh, I know those two uh, offhand and both very experienced people um, uh, that uh, I think we can have a lot of confidence. I think Dr. Fauci will likely stay on. Um, so I, I, I think I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about, uh, you know, their their initial focus on the pandemic and the vaccine rollout. So yeah. th- th- he's got great people advising him, but um, I would say it's it's less political than it is. Tech- the, the issue is less political than it is technical. And so it's really the competence and the effectiveness of state health departments, county health departments, city health departments, hospitals, pharmacies. You know, it's it's the it's the folks that Paul knows out in the Dakotas. Uh, you know, but, uh, stop by your uh, local health department and buy them a pizza. They are <laughs> understaffed, underpaid, uh, overworked, uh, criticized from all angles, and they're the ones who get the shots given. Yeah, very true. What what about any changes to the non pharmaceutical interventions? We haven't talked about these in a while since the vaccines come out, but that was something that was debated a lot politically earlier on. Do we expect any different recommendations as far as masks, distancing, um, shutdowns of different types of businesses or whatnot? So um, several states have already implemented a change in quarantine policy, and they're saying if you are exposed to someone with COVID and you've had both doses of the vaccine, you do not need to quarantine. That's kind of state by state. I think that that's a nice start. Uh, I actually encouraged our uh, um, uh, disease control director to consider North Dakota adopting that. I, I think we need to start attenuating some of the um, non-pharmaceutical interventions uh, to, to acknowledge that the vaccines you know, are, are getting us to a different place. I think the next things to kind of talk about would be you know, nurse. I, I hope CMS will come on board. I haven't heard this yet, but I hope they will come on board because they regulate nursing homes, and we need to be able to allow our nursing home staff who are fully vaccinated to stop have to doing you know stop having to be tested, you know, uh, without symptoms uh, one to two times a week. Um, and you know, maybe if we get to a certain percent of the, for example, in long term care. Uh, of the residents and staff, you know, fully immunized. Can we talk about the full PPE? Do we need all of that? Um, not quite there yet, uh, but I do. I think we need to be talking about this. The only one I've heard implemented is the quarantine. John, no, it, it, uh, I think that's all sound. Um, remember that the vaccine is not 100 effective. 
Um, and and there's that, you know, you, you need the uh, a period of time a week or two after the second dose. So uh, don't let your guard down too soon. John. So, John, there's 7.3 billion people in the world. And so they get, you know, 60, 70 percent of them vaccinated. That's five billion people. How long is it going to take to make and distribute that much vaccine? Two or three years uh, to get, you know, so so the. Uh, the, the production facilities are, are churning out tens of millions of doses per month. And as each additional brand of vaccine is uh, authorized, then, you know, that's an extra set of assembly lines, as you were, as it was. Um, so, but, but still, you know, uh, these are orders of magnitude um, to, to get up to 7 billion. So, um, you know, it, 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 it's just, it's a huge industrial effort. Um, John, can I ask you, uh, I think AstraZeneca announced that they thought they could get a billion doses out, uh, and produced fairly quickly. Do, do you know, like, the so, time so all, yeah, all of the, all of the, uh, major, um, brands are, or companies are, uh, forming alliances around the world. Uh, several of them have so so the largest vaccine production facilities in the world are in India. They're they're the ones who make the uh, the, the DTP and the MMR and, and all sorts of stuff for for South America, for Africa, for lots of Asia, and um, so, or, you know Indonesia, Asia Pacific. So um, uh, lots of them are forming alliances with with Indian companies to get the get the scale uh, up to that level. But that's that you know that's a billion in a year. So divide by twelve, you're at hundreds of millions. You know, and some of these products are two dose products. Uh, we don't yet have one that is one dose. Um, so it you know seven billion because oh, that's fourteen billion uh, doses. So. And I hear Moderna expects to make 600 million doses this year, so 300 million people. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the United States is not the only company, uh, only country uh, contracting right. for these products. I mean, Europe wants it. Um, Africa and Asia and Latin America want it. There's a there's a um, nonprofit group called CEPI that's trying to organize uh, vaccine uh, contracts for a lot of the developing world. Um, and, and, you know, what, there's a great ethical question of how much, you know, the United States acted first in, in setting up a lot of these contracts, but our consumption of the, of the early production is denying the product to other countries to a certain extent. So there's some ethical issues here. And how many other vaccines are there licensed in other countries? You know, we've got the two in our country, there's the AstraZeneca in Europe, and isn't, aren't China and Russia using different vaccines? Yeah, uh, um, so China has uh, two major products that where they've just released the the efficacy numbers, the effectiveness numbers, and they're let's say eighty percent effective, um, but they haven't published the the fine detail. The Russian vaccine has a curious track record of changing its numbers and not uh, publishing any any details. So. Uh, that's not one I would get in line for first. Um, and, and then there's, you know, there's a whole variety of other products coming. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's going to take a while. What's up next? What, what vaccines are in the pipeline next? So then from the U S perspective, the next one to report out will be, uh, Johnson and Johnson's, which is, uh, 
uh, one that's um, it's called an adenovirus vectored vaccine. It uses another virus to carry the relevant protein. And uh, that one is made in PERS-T6 cells, which have their origin in a fetus aborted in the 1980s. Um, and that's, of course, regrettable. Uh, but we'll just remind everybody what the Pope said the other day about, um, you know, don't don't commit suicide over uh, uh, over this issue. And are, are there any in the pipeline that look like a one dose product? Uh, sorry, the, the, um, Johnson and Johnson has uh, is is the one dose product, uh, but they also have a clinical trial underway with two doses. So uh, maybe it'll work as a one dose product. Maybe it won't. Or maybe it'll wear off faster. Uh, we, we have to wait for the data on that. My impression locally is that far fewer healthcare workers have decided to get the vaccine than I would have expected. I know in some practices, it might be like a quarter to 30% of the people that work with patients. H- have you seen numbers like that? And what would you attribute them to? And what do you think is going to happen? So we, um, we anecdotally have talked to a number of different chief medical officers, and uh, I'm medical director of a, a couple of nursing homes, and we surveyed our, so I'll give you the example of our nursing home, we surveyed our nursing home staff, of which 45% had had the infection, by the way. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, we already got some level of immunity from natural infection and quite a few. Um Initially, it was really only about 50, 55% saying that they'd be willing to um, take the vaccine. Um, We did a few things that got that up to over 80% in fairly short order. One was that we had them sign a declination form. So we've posted a declination form on our state health department website, which basically goes through, I understand what this virus does. I understand that it may, you know, kill me. I understand that I may spread it, you know, on and on and on. And I, I, and here's what the vaccine, what we know about the vaccine, its risks, its benefits, its, um, uh, et cetera. And I'm choosing not to get it. So they sign a declination form with their supervisor. Well, just that process bumped a lot of people up to, to take the vaccine. The other thing, you know, uh, we, we, we did was, you know, uh, long-term care staff were, um, uh, if they got COVID, they basically got 10 days paid leave uh, aside from their, you know, um, PTO. Uh, so it was kind of an additional. So th- there was actually in some circumstances a little incentive to kind of get my, you know, to test. Wow. Positive. We, we were hearing this anyway. Um, don't like to think that, but. I've, we, I've cared for a lot of patients who are kind of excited. They're like, you know, especially if they're young and they're not very symptomatic. That's you know, we, I'm yeah. excited to be home for 10 days. Yeah, exactly. I've got projects to do. Paid. And I'm not giving up any of my vacation or sick leave. So we said, you know, if you decline the vaccine and you get COVID and test positive, it's going to be on your own uh, personal time off. Uh, we're not going to cover that. Ah. Um, so, now, one of the one of the other long term care facilities in town is giving everybody 100 bucks uh, that uh, gets the second dose, um, like little bonus. You know, they say there, there was an interesting paper that was just I can't remember which journal it was in on. Is this a good idea or not to, you know, pay? Uh, and incentives to get people to vaccine, vaccinate. So I think it's going to be really variable depending on how well the education is. We, we did a bunch of things around education here in the state. Uh, did a series with our one of our local reporters who did a several part series on the vaccines. Great. Um, we've prepared educational videos for healthcare providers, long term care, the general public. 
Um, so uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but, but we can see incremental, you know, little jumps up in acceptance. And I think we're getting there. What about you, John? What do you know about acceptance among healthcare workers? Um, so I, I'm seeing the same kinds of numbers that you are. It doesn't surprise me a bit. This is human behavior. Why oh. do people go to the dentist? Uh, you know, what, um, all, the, all the human factors, uh, uh, trust and con- this is a trust and confidence exercise. Um, how, the, how the managers approach things probably matters a lot. Remember how f- low flu shot acceptance was among <laughs> physicians or nurses or whatever, any of the professions, um, until they were mandated. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, people don't like getting uh, sharp pointy objects put in their arm. They'll find excuses. But in this case, um, that infection can kill them. Do, do we see a different amount of hesitancy here compared to other vaccines? Like, you know, say the new shingles vaccine that's come out in the last several years. Does the Operation Warp Speed have have an impact? you know, kind of something to do with this, where this impression is that it was developed so quickly, or is it about the same level of hesitancy that you guys have seen with other shots? I I think people, you know, will, so it is, you know, it is a new vaccine and well, it, it was a, you know, it was a, has been tested in 30,000 people vaccine in the middle of December. Well, Shingrix was tested in 30,000 people. Uh, Okay. But now it's been in 10 million or 12 million, just in just a month later. Uh, so, so the um, uh, you know the experience base is is quite high. But this isn't about science. This isn't about evidence. This is about human nature. And so, people will do things that defy logic. <laughs> Paul, I want to. Oh, go I, ahead, Paul. I've used a quote from you, John, I think that was on the show, which is in the history of vaccines, there's been no side effect uh, uh, identified beyond six weeks of follow up. And, you know, I thought about that. I thought I, I think that was attributed to you. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a great way to kind of frame it. You know, people are, oh, I want to see I want to see it last a little longer look, you need to worry about long COVID and its long-term effects. That's way more likely to hit you than a, a theoretic uh, thing that we've never seen in any other vaccine you right. know, beyond six weeks. I, I think that was very, very astute. Well, a question for you, Paul. There is an article, and I sent you the link. I don't know if you had time to look at it, but it suggests that um, visitors should be allowed to see COVID-19 patients in the hospital, or at least some visitors. What do you think about that? Have we been too strict or are we too strict now? Are we talking about vaccinated visitors or aside from the vaccine now? Aside from the vaccine. Um, that's tough. So I, I think if um, I, I do think we have heard many stories, legitimate stories about um, how really difficult it was for people to bear their illness with no family around, no, uh, you know, nobody able to see them, hug them, touch them, etc., and I, I think we we do need to find a way to uh, attenuate that. I, I, that does not mean letting family bop in with no personal protective equipment right. and so on. Right. Um, I think now that we're, I mean, rapid antigen testing is rolling out everywhere. I mean, we got 2 million of them in the state and that we're, you, you can't throw a rock somewhere without a box or a rapid antigen test getting hit. <laughs> and, um, and uh, you know the ability maybe now to test people, you know, as they enter or come to visit or whatever. I think is 
is more doable. I do think we need to open up that more, but still be thinking about how do we uh, use PPE to prevent transmission and the rapid testing. John, I had a question about uh, how long immunity lasts. This number seems to also have been a moving target where initially it might have been four months and now it sounds like six months. And apparently the original SARS virus uh, still carries immunity for 17 years later. Um, What do we know about the immunity, both from the natural um, infection of the virus and the uh, immunizations? So there was an article in the last few weeks about uh, looking at people after diagnosis of of infection of, of COVID. And then uh, do they still have, how long do they uh, uh, have antibodies against the virus after they've recovered? And, and does, that vi- does that antibody neutralize the virus in a test tube? And, and I think the, uh, the, the most recent one is looking at looking out six or seven months. Of course, that's how long the pandemic, that's how right. long the virus has been around, right? So that's, that's, what, that's what we know. Um, and that makes sense, but you know, it, um, those numbers are also averages, and so there's you know there's a range around those numbers, um, and so um, one of the questions that get asked is if I had COVID nineteen in the past, should I get vaccinated uh, in the future? And well, there are a few, a handful of repeat infection cases, uh, and on that basis, um, the answer is yes, you ought to get vaccinated. But there's no rush to get vaccinated, and as long as there's a shortage of vaccine, uh, you stepping aside, you know, you the prior patient, the prior infected person stepping aside and letting the others go first uh, makes more sense. But the study with the SARS, the original SARS-CoV from 2002-2003, it's in the same family of coronaviruses as SARS-CoV-2, and that still has durable immunity 17 years later. Should that be a sign of hope? Well, not hope. Um, well, I'm not sure how you mean hope in that case, but uh, it's likely that this coronavirus is more likely to in, induce durable immunity compared to the coronaviruses that cause the common cold. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's fair. But I, I, I want to see real data. And I guess, Paul, you know, just with I've I've only heard of like like John said, kind of a handful of these places. They the people they all get written up for having COVID twice. You know, it was almost nine months ago now that how many tens of thousands of people in New York had coronavirus. If everybody was going to get this multiple times, wouldn't we be seeing a lot more cases? Yeah, I I, I think that's absolutely right. And and there's, I think you can count like on maybe two hands, maybe one foot, uh, how many you know documented <laughs> cases there are of you know bona fide repeat infections, symptomatic, etc. Now there's a, a number of people that have tested positive later a second time. But there's some there was an interesting study that was published, you know, looking at them and, and it's non-replicable virus. You can't it, it, when you look at what's oh. called genomic RNA, the signal for whether it's a replicating virus isn't there. So it's kind of sitting there and maybe not, you know, doing much. Um, and I, I think that's maybe fairly common um, because we're testing a lot of long-term care workers now over and over and some of them had it, you know, back in April. Uh, but they're probably not contagious. Let's talk about sin, as in syncytin. Syncytin is a placental protein. Yeah. And many people have been scared off 
by hearing that the vaccine might cause infertility. What's the nugget of truth behind that claim? And is the claim plausible? So I was getting so many Facebook posts. I'm this close to deleting Facebook, by the way. I'm really, <laughs> I was getting so many Facebook posts like, what are you public health people thinking? I mean, my Lord, uh, this could be causing infertility and so on. And so I ended up writing up a long you know, a Facebook post to address this. I've, you know, texted and talked to numerous people. So here, here, let me just walk through a few things like why this is just not a concern at all. So first, where did it come from? It came from two physicians, one in the UK and one in Germany. Uh, um, and the um, UK physician was a retired researcher who had worked for Pfizer about nine years ago. Several posts said, you know, the head of Pfizer research. No, he was not the head of Pfizer research. He didn't even work on vaccines. Uh, he did work on respiratory diseases. Um, and uh, the other uh, German physician um, was mainly a politician. Both of them were very involved politically in their countries. Both of them made several comments in uh, news uh, interviews and so on, saying this, this epidemic is overblown. It's not you know, real. We, should, we need to back off. And uh, in October, when they made these posts, they kind of got a little bit vilified in their own countries. They kind of got you know, a little bit beat down for making these claims. And then in December, they come out saying, you know, there's this theoretic possibility here that the syncytin protein in the placenta kind of looks a little bit like the spike protein. If you make antibodies that spike protein, you might be attacking placenta and causing infertility or spontaneous abortions and so on. So this was pure conjecture, no science, no data, just pure conjecture. Um, so when you talk to top immunologists on this, they say that the similarity is so tiny that the likelihood of cross-reactivity of antibodies is extremely low. But here's the real kicker that I say about this is that um, there have now been almost, uh, I think it's over 80 million infections uh, worldwide, presumably about half of those are in women. Um, and all of those make the same spike protein. So if, um, if all these women who, uh, presumably about 40 million of them uh, getting COVID infections, um, are making antibodies that cross-react with syncytin, uh, then we should be seeing an outbreak of infertility. And we should be seeing an outbreak of spontaneous abortions in pregnant women who get COVID. And they're now, I mean, we have hundreds of thousands reported in several studies, uh, even just in the U.S. here. And that's just not a complication of COVID. It's just, it, this is not bearing out. And the other thing that I read, Paul, is that the similar sequence in syncytin is actually buried beneath the surface of this three-dimensional protein. Right. So an antibody or a T-cell couldn't even get to that part of the sequence. Yeah. So I, I've read that too. I'm not enough of an immunologist to be able to you know, answer that directly, but I think that that is correct. You, and you and what I remind people is, here's what pregnant women really need to be afraid of. About a threefold increased risk if you're pregnant and get COVID of landing in the ICU, almost a threefold risk of landing on a ventilator, and about a 70% increased risk of dying from COVID compared to their non-pregnant counterparts. That's what they really need to fear. And I read this morning about several pregnant um, physicians who have received the vaccine yeah. just because they think the risk of the disease is far greater than the risk of the vaccine. Right. And the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists yeah. says get vaccinated. American Academy of Pediatrics says not to the children, but to the adults, get vaccinated. You, you would think if there was much uh, substance to this, we'd be seeing uh, all sorts of different viruses that cross-react and cause infertility. And, and in fact, we don't see that really. Right. It's not something that we look for. Right. 
Okay, on to another question that it's surprising to me how often this is asked, but it, it is a legitimate question. And that is, okay, we now have data on how much the vaccine prevents us from getting symptomatic infection. But other people want to know two other answers. And that is, how much does it prevent people who've been vaccinated from getting asymptomatic disease that they could spread? And how much does it prevent them from getting severe disease if they do get sick? Uh, you want you want to take a giant one? Yeah, let's let's take those one at a time. Let's let's yes. the, the easy ones the the severe disease um, one and the um, so in the clinical trials of the two vaccines uh, in the Moderna study there were zero severe COVID cases in the vaccine group, thirty in the placebo group, the control group. Zero versus thirty is a big difference, uh, <laughs> like one hundred percent, and so. Severe disease is prevented. Uh, with the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine, it was 90% of the severe disease was prevented. You know, it was a, a couple in the vaccine group and, you know, again, 20, 30 in the, in the um, control group. And so uh, the vaccine prevents severe disease. I, I just want to, you know, punctuate that. This puts these vaccines in the pantheon of our best vaccines ever. I mean, yes. this, this is like something to, you know, really, really celebrate. Uh, it's, it's an amazing achievement of science. And uh, the, these are rock stars in the vaccine world. And then the other question, preventing asymptomatic spread from vaccinated people. How do you measure that? It's hard to measure it, and so the, uh, the so the, the clinical trials had small subsets where they they did nasal swabs or, or similar type efforts looking for the looking for the virus. So it wasn't wasn't technically measuring transmission, me to you, uh, but just is the is the virus in the in in the nose, and it was uh, substantially reduced in, in for both of the products. The 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 one. Um, uh, there, there was another study that I, I, I didn't. I just pulled out a couple of snippets from. It. I probably should have pulled the whole thing. But it was it was looking at people. Did the did the um, uh, could there be? It was a transmission study. So it was looking at at, 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 at the transmission of the virus. This is not a vaccine study. But um, w when did they transmit? And and uh, fit. It was fifty five percent of all of the cases in the study. Uh, were transmitted from some from one of two groups: asymptomatic people or pre-symptomatic people, people who hadn't yet demonstrated symptoms, but they would. And so, oh, 55 percent. Well, that that looks really high. Except when you split the two groups into their component parts, um, and you took away the the pre-symptomatic people who would the vaccine would protect because they're not going to go get the symptoms eventually. Um, well, there's only 25% left. So the 25% the, the of transmission was from asymptomatic people. So it's a quarter of the pie, not three quarters of the pie. Ah, excellent so, point. I love that. Do, do we have, we haven't talked about this in a while, but do we have any more recent data on how many people we think are asymptomatic? I know that we did some serology studies early on in the pandemic. I haven't heard about that since then. Is that a, a big deal still? I think the, um, I hope I'm not mixing this up, but I think the, the still the working uh, hypothesis is that uh, up about 40% remain asymptomatic when you do comprehensive testing or, you know, serology or 
serial PCR where you're really trying to identify them. That's what we're, we're doing a study right now on um, quarantine college students uh, where we're trying to really define the incubation period. So they get put in quarantine from their exposure and we test them every two days with PCR. And we've had about 20 plus percent of them, you know, go on to uh, identify as positive. And it's, a, it's about 40, 45% of them have just never get any symptoms. Wow. And, you know, Paul, you had mentioned another thing in, in response to that previous question about these are rock star vaccines, this new mRNA technology. It, it got me thinking, you know, is this going to be used for other medical uses? I mean, we look at some things sure. like yeah. pertussis, uh, you know, your immunity starts going away immediately and other, other vaccines as well compared to these are so good for, for getting immunity. Are we going to see new vaccines being made with this mRNA technology? John probably knows more what's in the pipeline. I know that there's an influenza vaccine that's in the works made with this technology. You know, the scientists that were working in this area really were working in the area of cancer research uh, first. And I think they still think this holds a lot of promise for treating cancer, uh, you know, developing immune response to certain epitopes on cancer. Um, But I think there's going to be a lot of attention to this technology for a a variety of different pathogens. Yeah. One of the companies, I forget which one of the two, is looking at mRNA for multiple sclerosis treatment. But but it's not a guarantee. Um, Each pathogen is different. Um, Moderna... Uh, was developing a respiratory syncytial virus, RSV vaccine using mRNA. Uh, uh, Merck agreed to co-develop it. Merck gave it back because they didn't like the results they were seeing in the clinical trials. So there's no guarantees. Each, you know, each pathogen is different too. And, um, but, it, but it would certainly is a new, to- new tool in the toolbox. Another question from a listener uh, first, we'll dispel one of the questions I think can be easily answered. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are not made in cell culture, correct? Correct. But for vaccines that are made in cell culture, apparently it's expected that there will be some DNA fragments in those vaccines such that the FDA has an acceptable limit of up to 200 DNA-based pairs per dose of vaccine. So people are wondering about should this concern them or not with vaccines like the AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson? So the, those residuals have been there for, a, you know, as long as these, the, the, the MRC5 and the WI38 cell grown uh, vaccines uh, have been used since the 80s. Um, and, and, it, and somebody noticed it in a package insert, but it's been, you know, in the prescribing information. But it, those residuals have been there all along. They're, they are... You know, they are incredibly minuscule. And don't forget, you're, in, you're taking in DNA from cows when you eat a hamburger and from, uh, you know, it, 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 there's plant DNA in tofu. So if you're a vegetarian, you're not escaping DNA. So, or even with an insect bite, and it's getting in your bloodstream. Right. That's right. So excellent to, to point out. Uh, Paul, a completely different question. There's been um, <laughs> ivermectin on the internet. Uh, and all I can find are early studies like those March early studies with hydroxychloroquine suggesting it could possibly make a difference. What do you know about ivermectin for COVID? So it looks like, kind of like we saw with hydroxychloroquine early on, in the test tube, it seems to impair uh, you know, replication of the virus in uh, cell cultures. 
But the amount of ivermectin you need to achieve that is not what is achievable with current standard dosing of ivermectin. You, you'd need uh. to give way bigger doses, which have not been studied. I'm not very optimistic about this, although I, that's another one I get emailed regularly from, from people. But um, I, I don't. I, I think it's maybe reasonable to try and study it. But until we see actual clinical data, uh, let's not go the way we did of you know hydroxychloroquine. Uh, um, until we've got some actual clinical data showing benefit. I think there's a lot more promising things in the pipeline than that. It seems like a lot of the questions that that I see on a daily basis are kind of things that have hit the news cycle and um, have become more popular, one, one of which we got from a listener regarding amplification of samples um, so that when someone gives a sample, it has to be amplified to detect the virus and sometimes more than once. And uh, there's some people who feel like, hey, you're cheating. You're picking up too many viruses. Those are not real infections. What, what do you guys have to say to that? So uh, this actually was raised uh, in a political way in our state that even led to one of our state legislators demanding to tour our state health lab to kind of see just how fishy are you guys, you know, uh, um, you know, reporting out positive tests. So this is a complex question. I'll try and break it down. So um, when we do what's called PCR testing for the virus, it's looking for the genetic material of the virus. And the way they do that is it's through polymerase chain reaction, which means you try and amplify that virus to where you've got enough of it that you can detect. And sometimes you don't need to amplify it very much because there's a lot there. And sometimes you need to amplify it a lot because there's not very much there. And what some of these people are arguing is, hey, you know, some of these ones you're calling positive, you had to amplify many times. Typical cutoff is what's uh, said around 30 amplification cycles, cycle thresholds. That you, that, that means not very much virus. And there's a, some sort of sketchy studies that suggest when you're up that high, it, you may of a cycle threshold, which means a low amount of virus, this is not intuitive, um, uh, that you're, you're calling stuff positive that, that's so low it may not be contagious. Uh, the problem with that is, is we just don't know. We don't know if that small amount is contagious or not. Um, the reason they're basing that, uh, basing that conjecture is that it's, with those low amounts of virus, it's harder to culture them. Culture can suggest transmissibility, but it's, we don't, it's not perfect. We don't know. Um, and these things are uh, set up by um, uh, uh, laboratory uh, regulatory agencies where they, they calibrate these machines to detect what they think is a reasonable threshold of the virus. The second guessing uh, of this by kind of the you know, general public and so on um, is, uh, I think, a fruitless endeavor. And, until, and, and the American um, College of Pathology as, as said, kind of stop this nonsense. It's uh, we, we do our best to with the information we have at hand to identify virus that we think is a potential threat. And, and the other issue is, is do you want to send a healthcare worker into a nursing home with uh, residents with like, you know, your cycle threshold was kind of high. We think it's a low virus. You go ahead and work anyway. Um, we, we think you're not very contagious. We, we have no data to, to, to back that up. An, an analogy that I thought of was kind of with uh, urinary tract infections. A lot of times if people are drinking water, we can't see it when we test it in the office, but you have to yeah. send it for culture and then it shows up yeah. um, because there's not enough of it in there. Yeah. So kind of like you said, if somebody's got any COVID, uh, it seems like we should be a little worried. You're right, right. 
That's the end of our prepared questions. John, what final comments do you have as of January 12th, 2021 and COVID? So I, I said a couple of times in the last you know hour or so that um, this is a, a question of sociology and human nature. And um, I hope folks are um, getting their information from a reliable source. Um, you know, one newspaper article, one tweet, one uh, internet site is not a definitive uh, source of information. Uh, use and, and trust your health department. Um, they've, 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 they're, I've, I've interacted with so many different state health departments. They're wonderful people and they're using good science and they're trying their best to protect you. So uh, use them, you know, take, pay attention to their guidance because they're, they're good people and they're out to, to you know, to, to do the right thing for you. Paul? This is a, this is a matter of pretty simple math. Your risk of uh, shaking the dice with the virus is way, way, way more than uh, any perceived risk uh, of the vaccine. I would, in a heartbeat, and I did step to the, you know, as quick as I could to the front of the line to get the vaccine, even with the side effects I had today, um, happy to have those. Uh, what we're learning about the uh, risk of hospitalization and the long COVID, the long-term complications is a far greater threat. Um, get back, as John said earlier, get vaccinated. Dr. John Gravenstein, Dr. Paul Carson, thanks for being with us on this bonus episode of Podcast Only Dr. Doctor. Thank you guys. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.